Welcome back, everyone, to the Anagram Journey Podcast with Anagram Godmother Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and I will be joining Suzanne and Dr. Barbara Ryla for part two of three of our little mini series on the Anagram Trauma and Adoption. If you missed part one, you can find it on episode 73 of the podcast, and be sure to come back for part three. In today's episode, they talk about addressing change in others' behaviors. How do we relate to the stories of other people's lives? Episodic meaning, birthdays, adoption days, and memory candles. And there's some good Q&A from the audience. Also, you're going to hear from Anagram 6 Patty Pickering in this episode. As always, thank you for your support of the podcast and of Life in the Trinity Ministry. And please visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com for more resources and upcoming events. that stress move for each number mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we see in individuals possibly when trauma some level of trauma occurs and a lot of that behavior uh, the term pro-social mm-hmm. when people see that and see it as possibly quote-unquote good behavior but now with this knowledge of it's not and these people might be in trouble or struggling how do we help them. I'm convinced that we take healthy behavior for granted and we consider unhealthy behavior. The language we use around unhealthy behavior in other people is that it was predictable. Well, that's predictable. I could have seen that coming. Well, I knew that was going to happen. When you find yourself saying that, you're talking about unpredictable behavior that only happens occasionally, that is a response to something else because predictable behavior is ignored for the most part. When I am predictably being a two, nobody is talking about that. When Barbara's being a seven, when Joe's being a nine, nobody's talking about that. So it's, it's not only not predictable, it's not noticed. So you can go with the idea that when you are particularly aware of behavior in somebody else, it's not predictable and it is behavior that is representative of a change in them. So somebody, fours, who are normally focused inward, when they're focused outward, then you should note that. Because that means that there's a change. And if you know the Enneagram, then you know that fours are always focused inward, almost always, and twos are almost always focused outward. And so if a two is focused inward, that's a change. And if a four is focused outward, that's a change. That's when you start to address change in behavior by asking questions. And that's the only way to address change in behavior if you want a response. If you address change in behavior with statements or judgments, then you've already lost. So when a five goes to seven and they think they're being funny and they're being sarcastic and cynical, then you have to tell them that it's not funny because they think it is. They're not accustomed to being expressive in any kind of way other than knowledge that they're sure of. And when a four is running around trying to help you, then you would want to say, I so appreciate your help. Tell me about what's happening in your life. And you can do that with a kid who's six, are with an adult who's 60. Your inroad can't be to make them uncomfortable about where they find themselves. Because remember, it's an intuitive move to stress. If you haven't done enough Enneagram work to intentionally move to your stress number and to the healthy side of that, then the intuitive move is going to probably take you to average space. After that, then you're in charge of whether or not it goes Upper Nan. 
And so um, a tendency, for example, of a seven parenting a four who's suddenly helpful in two would be a quip. Uh, well, you sure are helpful today. And that will have the opposite effect of the effect that you want it to have. I think um, overall tools for an observable personality change or difference in people that you're seeing as their therapist or in people in your family or a friend. The number one rule is always ask questions, don't make statements. The number two rule is if it's your nature to assume that everything that goes wrong is about you, assume it's about them. And if your nature is to assume that everything that goes wrong is about them, assume it's about you. And then you have a different place to operate from because you're probably wrong if you go with your initial assumption. So ones, twos, and sixes, always assume that it's about them. It'd be real good for you to give some thought to it might be about the other person. And threes, sevens, and eights, pretty much stick to it's about the other person. So if you're one of those numbers, it'd be good for you to think this might just be about me. And fours, fives, and nines, if you've noticed it, that means you've checked in, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> and then, the, then the move is to stay connected rather than, oh, there's something going on here. I'm backing up. What you're describing is a consciousness around relating. And I think this is not something that we do. I, I think unless we are well-schooled in psychotherapy and Enneagram, we probably don't approach relationships and interactions with a conscious awareness. I think we're on autopilot. Right. And so living with a person who has endured trauma is going to require far more conscious awareness of all of these nuances. Um, it, it, it will be very challenging and well worth the healing that it'll bring. Mm -hmm. I also think that some of us, maybe all of us sometimes, when we notice difference in somebody that's a, an expression of something, I think sometimes all of us want to not get involved. It's like, I think I'm going to not engage about this. I'm just going to back up or I'm going to not ask. I'm going to, like, I, I don't have time to get involved in that or I, you know... I think there's a lot of that that goes on, too. And I also think that the more information there is coming at us, the less aware we are of people. It's like it's not possible to take it all in. And I think, would it be true that we would intuitively take the path of least resistance? Absolutely. So I'll just listen to a And that's not just a seven thing. Honestly. No, no, it's in every number. I, I'd rather listen to music or I think I'm just going to, you know, just going to do this. Everybody's got their thing, but. And trauma is so deeply affecting and so painful. Um, and of course, as a seven, that means I try to run the other direction as much as possible. But many, uh, uh, I think most people do, other than fours perhaps, want to withdraw from it. We want or fix to avoid it. it or fix it, kiss the boo-boo, make it better. And that's not how it works. But it is so messy and it's so uncomfortable and so unpleasant. We it, don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with it. Right, right. Okay, now I want to take it a different direction. And let's say that it's the trauma of not knowing who your biological, where your biological mother is, not knowing who your biological father is, and not knowing how to get that information. That's a completely different kind of trauma mm -hmm. that is as easy to walk away from because you know you don't have answers for the example that Barbara gave. It feels like you ought to have answers 
my question is, based on your Enneagram number, how do you relate to the stories of other people's lives? And there is a specific initial way of relating for each Enneagram number. So if you're in a situation where you've got an, an unfixable thing, so my definition of unfixable is that there are things that are never not true. So we can kind of segue into adoption with this in part because one of the things that you're never not is adopted. Doesn't matter how lovely things roll out, you're never not adopted. One thing you're never not is sexually abused. One thing you're never not is divorced. Um, th there are just things that you, you don't outgrow. They don't become distant memories. I've done a lot of work. I've had therapists for a long time. I'm pretty forthcoming with my stuff. I um, have people in my life who tell me the truth. I, I've done a lot of work, and I bet you, I bet you I think about adoption at least, I think about adoption at least three days a week. And I don't know about those of you in the room who are, are adopted. Who's adopted besides me? I hate Ancestry.com. Mm -hmm. because they advertise every day in my, like they're always there, and they're, they're particularly there at this time of year, right? And every time I see Ancestry.com, then I'm reminded that I don't know what mine is. And it's a trigger. Mm -hmm. It is. And, and we all manage triggers in different ways. And television has gotten so explicit that it's hard to not think about the fact that you were sexually abused on a regular basis. Like there's just all this stuff going on in the culture that's representative of trauma, that for those of us who have experienced trauma, it just starts the whole thing all over again for us, right? So I think it's possible to be mindful of what information you let into your life. And I think it's possible to be mindful of things you bring up that are hard for other people to have conversation about because of their life experiences. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about episodic meaning and then you can take off with trauma and all kinds of stuff and I'll follow. Okay. I am pretty sure that I think, how'd <laughs> you like that? I'm thinking repressed, you know, uh, as a two. So pretty sure that I think is a fairly definitive statement. And I'm pretty sure that I think that there are a lot of people who are living their lives from one episode to another. It's just episodic meaning. You just have an episode, and then in the episode, you get attention from other people, and you have a way to express things you don't know how to express in other ways, and it, you, um, you, you get that over with, and then you kind of go back to normal life, and it gets, it, it lacks energy. And we all kind of know when we're depleted in energy, and then uh, there's another moment that you can capture for another addition of episodic meaning if you want to. And you don't have to create the moment. It just comes. The moment just comes, and then you start over again. Joe and I have noticed in my life that if something happens that um, brings up my adoption, or that brings up this question I'm struggling with about whether or not I'm going to follow through and find out if this family actually is connected to me in some way because of my birth father. There are things that trigger that, and then once I start talking about it, there are five of them. Then five things happen. And I think, is it true that there's a part of trauma that kind of gets walled off, mm -hmm. but if you open the door just a little bit, then you see things that you don't normally see, and they lead you 
to another episode of Suzanne's Adoption installment number 5,402. We call it flooding. See, it has, and it has a name. Mm -hmm. I feel so healthy in the moment, I'm going to stop talking. Um, we're on adoption now. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, so my image for adoption is this. Adoption is a family that is built on the grave of a family. Adoption is the creation of a living family that is built directly over the grave site of the family that had to die in order for the adoption to happen. You know, my way of talking about that has always been to say, people say, you're so lucky. You're so lucky that Dawkins who adopted you, you're so lucky. And I have always had to say, do you realize that I had to be available to be so lucky? I had to be given away first, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. It's a thing. Mm -hmm. And, and it um, can't be solved. Can be treated, but it can't be solved. So it's like a coin. There's the heads of the coin and there's the tails. It it is one issue. Adoption is one singular issue that is either gonna land on the heads or the tails. The tails is gonna be traumatic and painful and devastating. Um, and the heads is the happy part. In our culture, we focus on the happy part. And what that means is that children um, who become adults don't have the opportunity to grieve the downside, the underneath of that coin. And if you cannot grieve the downside of that experience, I don't know how you can fully embrace the positive. Mm -hmm. How can you fully and richly love the people that you are bonded to in a layer on top of a grave. That's very good. So, you know, part of what uh, my story is that when I found my birth mother, it was because her cousin's wife was willing to talk to me. She wasn't. And um, when I, I, I said, she said, are you sure that Benny's your mother? And I said, yes, I am. I have my original birth certificate. And she said, have you had a, this is the cousin talking to me. And so I, I, I finally am on the edge of some information. And she said, have you had a good life? And I said, yes, I have. And she said, well, then it's probably just as well. So then what do you do? Then, then the trauma is, what does that mean? Right? That you never get answers to. So I'm, I'm going to say some stuff, and you need to clean it up if it's bad, because there's okay. a lot of foster moms and a lot of people in the room dealing with a lot of things around mm -hmm. adoption. So if yes. I mess this up, fix it. Okay. I'm so thankful that there are good people fostering and adopting children. I'm so thankful for that. And there are two things that worry me. And one is, a child can't complete you. And I think lots of people who adopt believe that their life is going to be complete with a child. And that is an unfair thing to put on a child. The second thing is, if you don't know the Enneagram, then you try to give the child the life experience that you think they want. And that sometimes is a big misstep. So I want to give you an example of that. Uh, I was on a podcast called Rebel Parenting, and I talked about stances. And I said, I don't think you can figure out the numbers of children. I think you have a if you do good Enneagram work, good deep Enneagram work, I think you have a chance to figure out what stance children are in. So they said, all right then, we're, we're going to stop our plan and we're just going to listen. 
and I taught them about stances, and they liked that very much. And the couple who are the hosts, it's their podcast, and they are a seven and an eight, and they had just had a birthday party for their son. And they live in a cul-de-sac, and they invited everybody to come, and everybody's outside in the cul-de-sac, and all the kids are playing and having a great time, and the father looks up, and his son's not there. And he thinks, as a seven, that he's planned the perfect birthday party for his child. And he goes in the house, and his son's in the house, sitting on the sofa, saying, I, I, I hope it's okay, I just needed a break. So then the host says, so he's a four or a five or a nine, right? And that's not like me at all, right? And I didn't plan the right birthday party, right? And I said, right. <laughs> that, that's it, exactly. That's what we're talking about. I think there's a temptation in all parenting to want to give the child everything that you can think of that would make life wonderful, except the things that you can think of that would make life wonderful are what would make you your life wonderful. And you've got to know that there's difference there. Uh, my parents loved me really well. And I'll, here are some basics. I don't know if they would have adopted me if I hadn't been a girl. Mm -hmm. They had biological children, boys mm -hmm. who were 18 and 15, and maybe they would have because I don't know what the backstory is and I'm not ever going to know. But I, I don't know that they would have. And I took ballet lessons and tap lessons, and art lessons, and all I wanted to do was play basketball. You know, there's just this stuff that you have going, whether or not you're a biological parent or a parent who adopts a child, of the kind of parent you're going to be and the kind of life you're going to provide for these children, and that may not be the life that they're suited for personality-wise. It comes from such a generous place it's hard to be critical of that in any way because it's, I want to give you everything. And some kids just don't want to have a sleepover. They want to go to their room and read. They don't want to be in five activities a week. They don't want that. And they certainly don't want you to call attention to the day that one family died in order for the other to be born. Talk about that. Birthdays, <clears throat> family holidays, all of them are triggers um, because it's a day that is a reminder of the loss, the abandonment, the separation, the rejection. So where, do you, where are you on um, adoption day and birthdays? Is that a good thing? Birthdays and adoption days both have to be treated as the coin that they are, that we have to have the birthday cake and we need to light the memory candle in honor of the parent we are no longer with. Ritual. It has to be a ritual that is a grieving ritual as well as a celebratory because there is no pure joy or happiness around those kinds of um, moments, episodes, mm -hmm. because they're tainted. Okay, I'm going to say something. This isn't, I'm not aiming at this at anybody in the room, because this may not fit you. That would be really hard for me, as a parent. To not, or it, to do the grieving yep. combined with yep. the celebration. Yeah, yep. boy, I'd have to be taught to do that. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I think it's a very conscious and deliberate um, type it, of relating. Why would it be hard for you? Why would it be hard for me? Well, because I'm a two, mm -hmm. and because um, I'd have to do an awful lot of work to be at a place where I could acknowledge that my all of the love that I'm giving you isn't enough. And so we still have to, you know, I would want to deal with that some other day. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would just be hard for me. To, I, I can it see that hard. that is totally healthy. Well, I just want to, that's why I want to point it out yeah. as being an Enneagram thing. Yeah. Because I'm like, if, if that's going to make this birthday better, let's get this candle out. Like, <laughs> you know, I yes. love you, you love me. Here's the candle, here's the cake. Let's do this whole thing. Yep. That's, 
It that's it is a it's all an enneagram thing, mm -hmm. all of it. Mm -hmm. And and here's what I love about the enneagram in relationship to adoption: it gives you a new language to speak that's totally personal and impersonal at exactly the same time. You can say mm -hmm. things that you just can't say. And then one one other point: something that y'all have tried to teach me and other people over the years is would you rather this or this would you rather be right or in relationship and this seems like a good opportunity as the adults to ask you know would you rather the kid have a happy birth like this growing thing like you said or kind of feel that martyrdom of my love is not enough does that make sense yes Without, unfortunately uh, all right <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> It sounded so awful, uh, so, but mm -hmm. I think that's a weird, that is just an important question that I know I forget to ask myself and dealing with my children, which are not adopted, but to ask myself at times of would I rather, is it more important that I be the, the parent, the one in charge or that this be better communicated? Well, so my language sorry. around that, and then we, we're going to do some stuff with the mic around the room. But my, la my language around that, Joel, what you just tried to say about me, uh, is this. Would I rather do what is holistic for the child that embraces all of the story or would I rather believe the illusion that I've been enough and I've loved well enough that it covers that? A two. Would a two rather, right? Would a two rather do that? Would a four rather put more emphasis on lighting the candle that represents the grave than the one that represents what we're doing because there's more intensity there and it, and, and, Fours are very comfortable with tragedy, right? Could a seven do what you're proposing, Barbara? Not easily. And could you do it without taking the edge off of it with humor? Could a nine do it and be present to it or just do it and stay distanced mm -hmm. from it, right? Could a three do it without reframing it and saying, we're doing this, because it's the successful way for us to celebrate, right? Mm -hmm. Could a five do it? <laughs> See, and I think the answer, not to cover my own tail as your son, I think you could. The issue isn't can you do it. I think that's part of being a parent, whether it's adopted yep. or Birth. not adoptive. Mm -hmm. And the mother that I know would have would would do the candle might not think about it for the first few years yep but when candle time when when it came to asking the question yep i'd do it for sure mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people a lot of parents out there listening i think are saying oh my gosh i'll i'll do i'm happy it. to I do did, it i didn't know i didn't know that's uh -huh. it that's, that's it. it that's it right there information and is power it is power and there is very little information about how to be an adoptive parent. Very, very little. Take so we this got kid home and love them. All, yes. And we got all these people who are adopting children and no tools. So we started working together and we were trying to set up the nonprofit working with adopted kids post-adoption. I remember having a conversation with Dr. Ryla that went like this. I'm writing the 501c3 paperwork. I'm doing all this research. I'm not really seeing a lot out there that really lends itself to support that that adopted children need after they're adopted. And Dr. Riley, what you said to me at the time, I don't know if you remember this, was like, Patty, that's not a story that gets told a whole lot because people want adopted kids to be adopted. That's right. And there, what, there just wasn't, and, you know, God bless the church and the people that adopt because their churches are into these movements. But back then, I can't speak to today, there just was, it, it was love them. Love is enough, you know, just find, give them a home, love them well. And just the parents that would come through our doors that had no idea, and you would say things like this to them, like you need to, you know, the 
the, the, the family that's built on the grave of another family. And it was like, when you, when you guys would talk to the kids about this, it was like water in a desert. It was like some, okay, wow, we're actually going to talk about the hard side of this. But they couldn't do it with their adoptive parents often. They had to have someone else that they were, or other kids that were adopted, you know, that got their story. Um, so I just am thrilled that this is going to be broadcast because it, it, it isn't information that's that's out there a lot of times. The, the grieving that has to go on and that really what the kids are dealing with. And, and the Enneagram works works so beautifully because because of the goodness of fit piece and you can understand that what they need isn't you know often what you're bringing right. so anyway I just from a historical you know just perspective I think we've come a long way but we've got a long way to go in terms of people understanding adoption every once in a while I start to talk about something that I my all of me is in the right place and it doesn't land correctly so if this is offensive to anybody who hears this, I don't mean to be offensive. And in my experience in the last three years, I have met several families who adopted children when those children were known to have very serious problems. And their families primarily who came out of faith-based situations where they were encouraged to adopt and encouraged to use uh, forever family language and who already had biological children. And in instances in those families, the children that they had prior to adopting children were being abused, hurt, sacrificed for the greater good of giving a home to these children who came with known problems but didn't have a home. That's not just. And that puts people in a terrible position in terms of what they're going to do to manage that. So that's all just problematic. That's right here. The second thing that's problematic is tools and education for people who are fostering children. You know, I'm, I, I, it's hats off to you from me for having room and space to take in children, to take in more children, to take in children as a group, to make all of those sacrifices, and if we're going to do that, then culturally, if we're going to see ourselves as doing that, we're going to have to see ourselves as providing some kind of extended care, education, support system for all of that. And the people who have contacted us lately just don't have that kind of support. And they, there's no way out of it once you get in it. There's no way out of it. So what, what's happening with all of that? And I can tell you that we have the most fantastic post-adopt support services uh, available, but it's not just post-adopt. Um, it's grandparents raising grandchildren very often because the children, but for the grandparents, would have been placed in a foster home or placed for adoption. And they're families that need support and need understanding of what the children have been through and what that represents in terms of their care. It's layers upon layers upon layers. And unfortunately, um, the trauma effects of children placed in otherwise healthy functional families um, contaminate the healthy functional people in the family so that everybody is infested by secondary trauma. And then their friends wonder why they don't come to church anymore, why they don't show up for the social hours, they don't call anymore, um, they check out because the wounds are so great that the family pulls into a cocoon for retreat, not for growth. It is such a question for me. 
how something that is so pure in motive mm -hmm. can become so problematic. Mm -hmm. And we don't want people to quit adopting. We no. don't want people to quit fostering. We don't no. want these children, many, mm -hmm. many children, to not be cared for mm -hmm. and to not be cared for uh, appropriately. And yet it seems like this is becoming more and more complex rather than less complex as we move along. Is that accurate? I agree. And it's not just psychologically, meaning emotionally complex. It's layers of brain growth and development. So there are literal physical changes with trauma that changes the, the um, ability of the organism to cope with stress and adversity. So we're layering physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, the mindfulness that it requires to successfully and attentively parent a child post-trauma or a child who's a sibling of a traumatized child even. It, it, it is walking across a minefield and conscious and deliberate mindfulness at its best, all the way, every time, every day, all day long. It seems exhausting to me as a seven. <laughs> well, that, and that's a big statement. Uh -huh. So here's what I would say about the Enneagram, and this sounds so simplistic in response to such a multi-layered thing. Mm -hmm. But I would just say that if you use the Enneagram, then at least you have a starting place. And I don't know how you have a starting place if you don't know yourself as a parent mm -hmm. and how you see the world and if you don't have some understanding of how children see the world mm -hmm. in one of nine possible ways. Then to me, what we're talking about would seem to be a much longer journey. Mm -hmm. I think it starts with mindfulness in the sense that the Enneagram gives us a structure around which to be mindful. So once we have that infrastructure and that way to understand the people we love, mm -hmm. then we exercise our mindfulness in layer upon layer of knowing ourselves, knowing our number, knowing uh, where we are at any one moment in time, interfacing that with knowing the best we can assess the number of our children or our loved ones and responding in the way that we know is healthy. So I think education, information is so, so powerful and I was saying to Suzanne earlier that the Enneagram is the only system of understanding personality and human psychology. It's the only system I've ever learned that wasn't a static slice of life, like photo snapshot of this is who you are, an x-ray of your personality. Enneagram gives us the ability to move in and out, up and down, back and forth, across the map. And that is the logistical path that is necessary to help people we love navigate trauma. Yeah, it, 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 it has a place in this conversation. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. All right, let's do some questions and answers around the room. But, and, and before we start, I want to make this statement. Once we start talking about trauma... There are no comparisons. It's just not allowed. Because trauma's trauma is mm trauma. -hmm. And once we start saying, well, I probably shouldn't say anything because my trauma is not that trauma. I was just. Yes, I was just. Then, uh, then we just are, are missing the reality of trauma. So no comparing because you will end up negating what should not be negated or holding higher what should not be held higher. It's just trauma. All right. I just realized this past year when I turned 29 that birthdays were a trigger for me because I finally realized 
that I didn't like celebrating my birthday or other people's birthdays. And I think that also went into holidays as well. I don't know how to get gifts for people. And I wonder if that's been a thing for, for me as well of, of celebrating other people. However, what I realized on my 29th birthday is I can't imagine what it's like to be a mother and not have your child there on your child's birthday. And for me, every single year, I was thinking that, but I was able to voice it out loud on my birthday. And you were talking about two sides of the coin, grieving and celebrating. And so my question for you is, just as I move forward, what does that look like for me to overcome? How do I overcome something like that? I'm in therapy right now, so I'm going and working through all this stuff that I've been dealing with. But from your perspective, what does that look like to overcome something like that? I think uh, overcoming is probably the wrong goal. I think um, assimilating those two pieces into one whole is probably better. That this is, um, birthdays are this. They're, they're very intertwined with positive and negative. They can be a trigger, but they can also bring a modicum of joy and celebration. But you can't in- extricate one for the, for the other. You, you, and I don't want you to think of it in terms of accepting the downside or the good side, but really it's assimilating into the core of being that life, every aspect of life is both positive and negative. And the best way to understand that that I've ever encountered really is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the Enneagram are the only two things that knit both positive and negative together in one phenomenal piece. So assimilation, I think, is a better goal. So you know how when I teach the Enneagram and I say we culturally live in a way where we just want to get rid of parts of ourselves that we don't like, but the best part of you is also the worst part of you, so you can't do that, or the worst part of you is also the best part of you. So you just have to wrap your arm around the whole thing and keep moving. And I think that's true with adoption and, and with all the questions that we carry. You know, some days I just have way more questions about my own life than Mm -hmm. I have answers. And when you can't get the answers, you just have to wrap your arm around the whole thing and do both Mm -hmm. life and death, both light and dark, both what I know and what I don't know, and keep moving. And you are, as a nine, equipped to do that in a way, you have a a leg up on some other Enneagram numbers who are more inclined to be either or rather than both and thinking. On the other hand, part of what you struggle with as a nine, you have already perfectly demonstrated with your question because it's fascinating to me that you have thought about your mother on your birth, biological mother on your birthday. Mm-hmm. And that's nine space. Man, not me. I, I tried not to do that. It didn't work, but I've tried not to do that. And then once I found her and found out she didn't want to have anything to do with me, I thought it would be easier. And then birthdays were just more complex because I thought, well, She's done this day all these years without thinking about me, but I don't believe that. I don't don't think you can do it. I just don't think you can do it. So I'm going to recommend a book that I don't have on the tip of my tongue, the author for. But one of the biggest gifts I ever got is somebody walked up to me at at an Enneagram workshop at the end of the day and handed me this gift and said, I don't know if I'm supposed to give you this or not give you this. I don't know if you're going to keep it or not keep it. I don't know. And she's handing it to me and pulling it back with everything she says. And I'm, I'm going, uh, uh, uh. And finally she puts it in my hands, and it is a book titled The Girls Who Went Away. Mm-hmm. And if you are, uh, th- that's just a mm-hmm. real important book to read. The Girls mm-hmm. Who Went Away. Sorry, I don't know the author. It's a book by Ann Fessler. Ann Fessler, The Girls Who Went Away. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ryla, how and when... Do you begin to try to assimilate some kind of ritual uh, 
into the life of an adoptee. If we're going to try to do the cake and the candle, when's a good time and how do you start that kind of ritual in, in the life of an adoptee? From the very beginning, from infancy on, you create, um, as soon as the child joins your family, you create a place for honoring the the pain of this experience as well as the pleasure. And so if it's a newborn baby, it may be something like celebrating with the smash cake and afterwards the parents and family members join hands and pray for the birth family that went before them. And that doing that each and every year the knowledge and understanding for the baby grows along with the child. And if it's done from the very beginning, the child integrates, assimilates both sides of that experience in a way that is richly led by parents who get it. Okay, I have a question. What do you do in a situation like ours where Joe adopted the three children that I had when we married, but their biological father was both alive and present, but not present to them. That's a different kind of death, a different kind of loss, but it's the same rule that you said before. We don't compare, right? You cannot compare their loss and experience to the loss of um, another child. It is abandonment. It's rejection. It is, um, it sucks yeah. for yeah. the kids yeah. to be the ones that are left behind. Yeah. First of all, I want to say thank you to both of you for doing this. Um, do you find that there's equal trauma in an open adoption and a closed adoption? Yes, both are traumatic, and I think the open adoption proponents kind of underestimated because open adoption was conceived to be a force for healing. And what it actually does is it creates here and now shared air interactions that layer on yet more complexity. Um, It's part of why Suzanne doesn't want to go into finding that birth father, because if that story is an ugly story, then she is going to experience the ugliness that they bring to the table, which adds additional layers onto her own experience of adoption. Just so you know, uh, I'm opposed to open adoption. And I'm not. Um, but I also, and we've talked about it for years. Yeah, I, I'm not opposed yeah, well, but to she it. always wins because she's got all this fancy talk, right? But I will tell you that they are they are messy and they're complicated, and they exponentially complicate um, relationships through all members of the triad. Yeah, you know that because you live it, right? Because you've got some openness in yours. Yes, it's very complicated. And that's why I think having a therapist is really a wise idea. And one of the things I'll do is try to get all the members of the triad into the room together, if possible, so that we can directly address these kinds of things. So I have two things to say. So I have two things to say. Only two? At the moment, yes. Okay. (laughs) And one of them is, let's just be clear. There are not a lot of you around. Yeah, she's right. So I, I don't know what we're going to do about all the emails Joel's going to get for a good therapist for dealing with adoption, but we need to... I, I, I just want to say, I, I just don't think there are a lot of good therapists around who are dealing with adoption. And so I think we're being a little bit... Uh, maybe I'm a little naive in saying you need a therapist because I don't know exactly where you're going to go get one. So I think there's that. Yeah. The other thing I want to say, though, is, you know, we have a therapist. Like, we, we've got one. We go for a while, and then we don't. And then Joel will say, I think you need to go see Bob. <laughs> I'll say, if you don't stop this, we're going to see Bob. <laughs> 
So here's, though, what I want you to hear from me as an adopted child who's now 69. Whatever I am struggling with, it ultimately ties back to being adopted 100% of the time. 100% of the time. It just doesn't go away. It, it just doesn't. And I don't think people are mindful of that. Mm -hmm. It feels like if you had a good home, you need to buck up. Didn't somebody say buck up and get mm -hmm. over it? I don't know who I, where I know that from, but it's like, you need to... You, Suck it up, buttercup. Yeah, well, I grew up in a town where everybody adored my parents, and the mm -hmm. whole reality was, you're the luckiest person on the planet. And I, I feel very blessed to have been parented by them. And... I'm adopted. For you, you said everything goes back to being mm -hmm. adopted. Is that true for everyone? If you do enough therapy, it's going to go back to this thing. I think um, it's parental loss. And I think it all goes back to parental loss. And My children lost their father to cancer. And that will always be a piece of who they are. They were, they were orphaned by their father in a premature time in their life. And that will never not be there. Um, so I think that the core issue is parental loss. And we want to make pretty faces about adoption and how lucky people are. But yeah, man, it's tricky. and my children would not not have a father if there wasn't cancer. Right, right, right. Two questions. So what would be the most comfortable way to introduce the candle? Or uh, my daughter's 14. Is she old enough and mature enough to be invited to what would be a ritual that she would be interested in? It's a conversation to have with a 14-year-old. And, and I think the conversation starts out about, you know, I just heard this crazy woman from West Texas talking about <laughs> adoption. And she brought up the, the fact that adoption has a downside. And, and if you've never talked with your daughter about that, you say, I don't know. Talk to me about that. And then after your child has kind of processed that somewhat, and we hope that they will, then you go and say, well, how could we honor the family that was, that is dead, is no longer? How can, what would that look like to you? And a 14 year old may, you know, say, balloon release or something and then we'll have to talk to the child about ecological considerations <laughs> um but a 14 year old will have an idea about what they would see as appropriate they're pretty creative beings so she may well have some thoughts and i would definitely take her lead with that as a 14 year old adopted i would have said oh i don't want to do that I, I, it's just us, and I'm good. Mm -hmm. And if that's what the child says, it's just us, it's good, just say, that's fine. I, I just want you to know that I am now aware of the dark side of adoption, and I will never have another birthday celebration with you again without me saying a prayer, lighting a candle for the people that you are no longer with, so that you have taught her that it's okay to grieve, you're going to demonstrate grieving, and that you think it's appropriate, because some 14-year-olds are little sh** and oops, excuse me. <laughs> You're not suggesting that I was, surely. I was a little I believe that. Oh, yes. My mother at 14 wanted me to go take care of the siblings. And remember, there were many of them. And I looked at her and I said, you had them, you take care of them. Is this one of those <laughs> circumstances that could possibly transcend the Enneagram, that conversation? Yes. That, I don't have a... Con I, Children, that, you know, this child might respond to... Mm -hmm. I got nothing except that I, here's how I would have responded as an adopted child. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try to put the Enneagram on that. I will just say that let's just talk about you and Joey and Jenny. You and Joey would have said, I'm not doing it. Jenny would have followed. And interestingly enough, had you chosen to do it, if, if we had offered it and you had chosen to do it, it would not have bothered Dad. 
and it would have bothered me. So there's Enneagram stuff for you, but we'd have to come up with so many things. And then it has to do with how healthy you are and, you know, which would indicate that he's healthier than I am, which I don't want to go there at all. So let's just move on to another question. Okay. What advice would you give to the parents where one child is orphaned and then remarried, has half-brothers and sisters, but being that child, you know you're different. No one wants to talk about your past, your scars, especially if you had the parent lost the spouse, so it was a traumatic event for the parent who probably couldn't still talk about it to this day, even though they're in their 70s. You never fit in. You can't talk about it, but then you know that you're not biologically part of it. You're missing half your DNA that you never know about in a family that still exists. And to bring it up emphasizes the loss and you don't belong, but to ignore it is excruciating. So what do you do, especially because you work with veterans, they're Mm -hmm. going to have that situation. What do they do? Because being that child, I don't know that I would have felt comfortable with a candle now or then or... How do you honor the life of the man that was your father? I am the worst person to ask because I think as an adult, looking back on it, my mother is a very unhealthy three that actually does live in the narcissism space. And she disconnected from my brother and sister who are a nine, middle child, and a five. Um, I never got to. All of the military stuff was in a can in the basement, and every once in a while she would show me and say, but this would upset your father if we talked about it, which I'm not sure it is because toward the end of his life, he encouraged me to go search for people, and I did that, classmates of my father, to learn who he Mm -hmm. was before he was killed. So I never got that until 50. (laughs) But I don't know how you would, being the child that has so much confusion about that, I, I don't know... It seems almost easier if you had neither or you have both, but to be the child in the crack seems to be the worst, especially when you have other siblings. It's the, the, the image is the stepchild, and we call it a stepchild because they don't fit, because they're not wholly involved in the family. So there's our language and the connotation of our language is painful and burdensome. And I don't know that there's a way to heal it at this stage of the game. So the healing that can't happen in the family must happen inside the individual. And I think that's where the psychotherapy piece probably comes in, to be able to reconcile the irreconcilable and to allow those two pieces of who you are to cohabit side by side at peace with one another. As far as helping a family at this late stage, I don't think that's going to happen. So you have to do it yourself. If it's, if it's a child that is of an age where we can drag them all into psychotherapy, I definitely recommend family therapy for that kind of situation because family therapy is a place where the unspoken can be spoken and it's a place where the unspoken is not only spoken but examined and understood, accepted, and dealt with. Um, So definitely I would encourage the family therapy if a family is struggling to pull together as a unit. The best thing that happened to me, the most healing thing that happened to me in therapy is when my therapist said, you know, you're just going to have to carry the hole. Mm -hmm. You have a hole in you Mm -hmm. that cannot be filled. Mm -hmm. 
And so all the things that you do to fill it, all the questions that you ask, all the things that you consider are not going to fill the hole. So the work then, and I'd been in therapy for a long time when the work shifted to how do you care? How are you just going to carry this hole? Because you're going to have it till you mm-hmm. die. So what are you going to do with that? Accept it. Yep. Embrace it. Yep. Learn about it. Get acquainted with it. Make friends with it. And, and I think there's the potential with information for, this is bad language, I feel sure, oh. for collateral damage. So the person who supposedly is my birth father has died, potentially has died. So then the question is, what happens at 69 if I go through that and it's not him? What happens if I go through it and it is? What, like, that's a lot. And Joe and I have four children and they're all married and we have nine grandchildren. And that's about all I can handle. Mm-hmm. That like that's a lot of family that comes after my adoption. So I think there's a point too where you keep going. You just keep going. It's just hard. It's hard. It's very hard. And it's much harder than it seems, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to talk about fostering a little bit. And then I want y'all to talk a little bit about Thank you guys so much for listening. As Suzanne says, the work is definitely worth it. Please be sure to listen to the next episode, uh, which will be part three of three of Dr. Ryla and Suzanne's conversation on adoption, trauma, and the Enneagram. Feel free to send your questions in to the enneagramjourney.org backslash contact.